everyone and welcome back to Sci Section. I'm Halima, your journalist for this week, and today we are delighted to have Dr. Jeff Kwong, an epidemiologist, public health and preventative medicine specialist, and a family physician. With all of these roles, Dr. Kwong serves as a professor at the University of Toronto and as a scientist at ICES and Public Health Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, so as we don't often get to see the personal side to many frontline workers and researchers like yourself, especially during COVID, um, what are you most looking forward to post-pandemic? Well, first of all, uh, traveling. I uh, miss traveling a lot, uh, seeing friends and um, eating out at restaurants. I would definitely agree as well. I miss go going to restaurants as well. Um, so how did you get interested in medicine and how did that interest ultimately lead to a career in public health? Yeah, I've always, um, you know, had an interest in helping others and um, I was strong in the, um, you know, biological sciences. So uh, I gravitated towards a career in medicine. And when I got into medical school, I realized that I liked looking at um, kind of bigger picture things. And that's why I decided to go into public health. And how has your work changed uh, and research really changed pre-pandemic to now? Well, before the pandemic, um, most of my research was in the area of uh, influenza and other, um, you know, infectious diseases and, you know, and the, you know, impact of vaccines. And so, um, you know, it's a transition to, you know, everyone basically had to pivot to doing like COVID research. And so that wasn't, uh, it was a relatively smooth transition for me because it was, you know, respiratory viruses have a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, a lot of your research is focused on influenza, studying really everything from the association between influenza and heart attacks to influenza and vaccine eff effectiveness. So drawing, I guess, some parallels to today, especially pertaining to um, vaccines and even uh, heart attacks, how has your work in influenza translated to the ongoing pandemic? Yeah, so a lot of the work I was doing is like, you know, at, at ICS, uh, we, we work with a lot of the large um, health administrative databases. And so it's about, um, you know, we link databases together to do epidemiologic studies. And so for COVID, we've been doing a lot of the same where we brought in lab data for like COVID testing. And we've been doing a lot of the, you know, um, epidemiologic surveillance. Um, so looking at, you know, percent uh, positivity for COVID over time and at different levels of geography. Now with the COVID vaccine stuff, I'll, I'm gonna be doing a lot of work in COVID vaccine um, surveillance. So how well um, are, are the vaccines working? Um, are there any concerns about safety and what percent of the population are getting COVID vaccines? So it's a lot of the same sort of methods, but instead of looking at influenza vaccines, now we're looking at COVID uh, vaccines. And I guess the question has played a lot of scientists fighting misinformation pertaining to COVID since March. And really as an expert in influenza, how is COVID treatment, prevention and vaccination different from the flu? And why is it much more, I guess, um, threatful to us as a society having to deal with COVID-19 versus the flu? Yeah, so I think like there are similarities between influenza and COVID, but there are important differences. You know, so in terms of similarities, you know, they're kind of transmitted by the same sorts of routes you know, droplets, and then also some, probably some aerosol uh, transmission. They're both respiratory viruses. The methods to prevent those two infections um, are, are the same. The wearing the masks, uh, physically distancing, uh, hand washing, you know, all the things that we are, you know, told to do to prevent COVID infection also work against influenza. And that's why we haven't seen any influenza 
um, you know, since we've had, since we've been doing all this stuff against COVID, it's basically uh, crushed, you know, influenza circulation. Uh, in terms of treatment, um, um, I think the treatments are different. You know, we use these steroids and um, other treatments now for COVID, whereas like for influenza, there's, there's like, we have the antivirals against influenza, the you know, oseltamivir and, and other antivirals. So the treatments are different because they are different viruses, but in terms of prevention, the public health measures are pretty much the same. The, you know, the infection prevention and control measures will work uh, for both um, um, viruses. And then obviously the vaccines are different. So, you know, the vaccines are training um, our immune system to identify, you know, specific um, pathogens. And so, you know, they'll be different uh, between influenza and COVID vaccine, uh, COVID. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, um, the various approved vaccines, obviously they're, you know, currently being rolled out in Ontario specifically. Could you run us through exactly which ones have been approved and how exactly they work? Um, I guess in that sense, really highlighting their safety and importance so we can get as many people vaccinated as possible and build that herd immunity to ultimately go and travel again and see friends. Yeah, well, first I, I just wanna emphasize that they're all very good vaccines. Um, and, and I just wanna emphasize that they, um, you know, that they're excellent, all for like all, all of the ones that we have available in terms of uh, preventing hospitalization and death, which are the most uh, important outcomes to prevent. Now, the first two that um, people that were approved were the mRNA vaccines. So um, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, um, what they are is a, they're just um, a piece of the viruses um, RNA that's uh, enclosed in uh, a, a lipid coating and uh, then that's injected into your body and what happens is that a piece of mRNA gets um, introduced into the cells of your body and then uh, tells your cells to produce the virus's um, spike protein. Uh, so one of the proteins on the surface of the virus and then when your body uh, produces them then they train your um, immune cells to uh, identify that virus. And so that when you actually do encounter the virus, then you'll be able to fight off the infection. And then the other uh, vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, and then the uh, Johnson & Johnson, which is not yet available in Canada, has been approved, but uh, we haven't received any uh, deliveries of the vaccine. Um, those ones uh, are, are similar, that they contain a piece of the viruses, uh, genetic material inside of um, another virus, that they use that virus to deliver the, the genetic material of the, of the virus to our cells. And so they use slightly different um, technologies, but you know, at the end of the day, they train our body to um, develop the antibodies against the coronavirus. Um, so that's basically how they all work. And as I said, that they're, they're all very effective and so Hopefully uh, everyone, you know, when they, when their turn comes to get vaccinated, they will uh, go get the vaccine. And as these vaccine efforts are gradually rolling out, what issues do you think we'll face in terms of really many things, reaching marginalized communities, logistical concerns, as we've seen, and also, as you mentioned, vaccine hesitancy? How do you think these issues will play out? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of accessibility, you know, it's, it's important to uh, make it as accessible, accessible as possible. So having lots of different uh, places where people can get vaccinated. So, you know, we have, you know, mass vaccination clinics, 
uh, people can get it at pharmacies. Hopefully, um, family doctors will also be able to uh, give it uh, to patients in their offices. Um, and then we're also doing uh, a lot of outreach. So there's like mobile pop-up clinics. Um, there's been a lot of outreach, you know, to long-term care homes and other settings where there's like uh, group living. So like such as shelters and, and other places like that. And then in terms of hesitancy, that is a growing concern. Um, you know, we are seeing that in some areas, uh, certain communities uh, seem to, you know, lack confidence or lost trust uh, in the vaccine. So they're uh, not having as high levels of, of uptake as we'd like to see. And these often are the ones where, which have been most hard hit by the, the pandemic. So uh, I think we really need to engage uh, community leaders to uh, encourage uh, these communities uh, to go get the vaccine, explain to them that these are safe and that they're effective and that it's, it's important uh, for them to get vaccinated to protect themselves and their loved ones. And why do you think that is that the communities that have been most hard hit with COVID are also the ones that are, in a sense, the most hesitant to its solution? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure, um, but I, I suspect, you know, there could be um, language barriers, there could be, you know, issues of, of mistrust in, in government or mistrust in, you know, authorities. And so I, I think this is something that definitely needs uh, further studies so that we can understand and, you know, address this as best as possible. And I guess as you work directly in the field of infectious disease, politics especially has been very influential in the last year. And many public health experts are often battling between, you know, the public's outward interest of returning back to normal life versus the health fallback of doing that so rapidly. So how have you experienced this yourself in your work and tackled this? Well, it has been a huge challenge. Um, and I think as, um, you know, for the public health physicians, you know, they, uh, it's the population that is their patient. And so they have to look at the overall good of the population. And it's a, definitely a balancing act between, you know, trying to save lives and reduce illness, you know, through measures such as lockdowns and, and other public health restrictions, but also looking at the consequences, you know, the collateral damage from these measures. So the mental health of folks, um, education, you know, when they uh, had the schools closed and, you know, all sorts of things like that. And then as well as like, you know, people's um, economic, you know, their livelihoods, right? So, you know, if they have to close all the businesses, well, you know, then people lose their source of income. And that's, you know, obviously an important determinant of health as well. So all of these factors play into the decision-making. And although I'm trained as a public health physician, I don't, I don't practice as a public health physician. And so all of my colleagues who have been in public health uh, physician roles, like the medical officers of health, you know, they've had to make a lot of difficult decisions over this past year. And, you know, they're trying to best, their best to get it right. But sometimes, you know, striking that balance can be very hard. Um, so, you know, it is tough. And we'll just have to see how things go in, in this next wave. I think it's definitely an incredibly, incredibly difficult job because 
really there is so much politics and everyone has their own opinions regarding everything and in the everyone's best interest is getting back to the way that things were but in that same breath it isn't the best way to go about it right away so it's a difficult job for sure and I think now looking forward to the future how do you think our society will be different post-pandemic do you think we'll be more health conscious I guess all from this medical perspective well hopefully we'll keep up some of the behaviors um, you know, such as the hand washing um, and, you know, staying home when and sick, you know, these are things that we, we should always do and that we, but we don't often don't do. And so hopefully that's one of the things. So them, some of those are some of the things that we will continue to do. I, I mean, obviously we don't want to be wearing masks, you know, forever for the rest of our lives, but we, we do know that, you know, when we do wear masks, then we can prevent a lot of uh, these respiratory uh, infections. And so, you know, this year there was no influenza season, no, basically no other respiratory viruses that we normally see um, in the fall and winter, you know, even something like asthma, which, um, you know, there've been like fewer cases of asthma exacerbations because a lot of asthma exacerbations are caused by uh, respiratory viruses. And when there's no respiratory virus infections, then people's asthma are, you know, can be better controlled. I think, you know, I, I don't think we should continue the things like the physical distancing and masking, but um, some of the, there have been some benefits from having those. So I guess it's about striking the balance uh, moving forward as, you know, things, you know, would be acceptable to do like hand washing and staying home if you're sick. And maybe some things like working from home could, will be more prevalent um, and that will maybe be better for the environment too, like less, fewer people commuting uh, in the future. And I think there is lastly, a lot of conversation about COVID-19 in general and the likelihood of viruses like COVID-19 to be reoccurring. Do you think there's anything in our society that we can do to prevent this? And is it likely to happen that viruses and coronaviruses are going to be more common to be dealt with um, in the future? You know, I think that's a really good question. I think that, um, humans were, were encroaching more places in the environment that we, we didn't go to before. And so there, in the recent decades, there have been more zoonotic uh, infections. So those are infections that are uh, in infectious agents that are normally in animals and have been jumping to, into humans. Um, so that combined with uh, more uh, global travel and then you know, overpopulation of the planet you know, are all kind of factors that can increase the risk of uh, pandemics like what we're currently experiencing. I mean, I think the last huge pandemic that we had was, you know, 100 years ago, you know, the Spanish flu of, of 1918, 1919. And, and since then, we have had a number of influenza pandemics and, you know, other novel um, infectious agents that, you know, that have been controlled, um, such as the first SARS and MERS and other viruses. It's hard to predict the future. I, I mean, I think that there are factors, you know, kind of the, like we've got these factors in place right now that make, that do put us at higher risk, but um, hopefully, you know, we have the uh, mechanisms to prevent, you know, another global pandemic like this uh, in the future. And on that note, thank you so much, Dr. Kwong, for joining us today and speaking to us about all things pandemic and public health. It was a pleasure having you and thank you for all the amazing work that you do on the front lines and researching for COVID-19.